ActiveHistory.ca is happy to present a recording of Canadian Archives at Risk, a roundtable panel at the 2014 Canadian Historical Association Annual Meeting. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. Thank you and welcome, and thank you for being so numerous here at uh, 7 o'clock. On the, anyway, thank you. Um, I, what I see my role as doing here, I'm on the CHA Council, and uh, with Erica, we're uh, archives liaison, and uh, give you a kind of overview of what we have been noticing at the CHA, our initiatives, and give you a sense of what, what's going on. Uh, because I don't think there's one conversation between two historians that doesn't involve at least a few minutes of whining against what's happening at Library Archives Canada. But often what we find out are snippets here and there, some horror stories, others, can you believe it, that... Um, but we often don't have the big picture. I know this was the case uh, for me until I, I uh, got involved in, in this. And uh, I've actually been allowed now to step into the dark side. And uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to, to uh, give an overview. I do want to thank uh, Joe McCutcheon. She uh, lobbied strongly for us to have uh, a place on the program. And I'm really glad to see that uh, many of you have have, uh, well, read the program and come. Um, now, we're not the only ones right, to be interested in archives in this way. Uh, it just so happens in the last couple of years, really some quite uh, prominent groups have shown interest in archives. I'll just give you uh, a few examples. Uh, under the auspices of the Royal Society of Canada, uh, it brought together a panel of experts to study, and I quote, the status of and future of Canada's library and archives. Uh, it held hearings across the country. Uh, I presented our report to them in Halifax uh, last fall, uh, and they're going to produce a report in November. Um, the second initiative, uh, the Council of Canadian Academies, will also assess memory institutions, including archives, and uh, they are specifically addressing the challenges of digitization, and they're going to produce a report um, later this summit. And also, finally, uh, there was an archives summit, January 14th of, uh, of this year. Uh, Dr. Dominique Marshall was um, part, took part. She'll share our, her experiences with us. But all this to say, uh, archives are in the news. Now, you may think the, uh, the, the title was a bit alarmist. It wasn't a hook to get you uh, to come. What we've discovered, frankly, through our conversations with um, officials at Library Archives Canada is that, no, there are some very serious, worrisome uh, developments, and uh, I think the more we're aware of this and understand it, the more we're tooled to, to hopefully do something about it. So, um, 
What I will be uh, focusing more specifically on is what LAC officials have called their modernization process. Uh, so for some of you, again, this is tell me something I don't know, but uh, I want to give you a sense of what they perceive uh, it to be. Um, now, uh, much of what I will be telling you is what we presented to the Royal Society panel, produced a 20-page report. So I'll give you a sense of what we said to them and uh, also a sense of, well, conversations we're having with LAC officials and what they've said to us. Now, at the Royal Society panel, to the Royal Society panel, we made the point that we were concerned uh, about what was happening, but also made the point that uh, we're, we're not dinosaurs. It's not that we're resisting change by definition, but it's just that the type of changes that are taking place. We fully understand that there are changes, budget cuts, tremendous, very drastic budget cuts, uh, and these are out of uh, LAC's, I'll say LAC, uh, Library Archives Canada, LAC's control. Uh, and they, they've been drastic since, for example, the spring of 2012, 20% of its workforce has been cut, about 200 positions. Over the last three years alone, its budget has been reduced by 9.6 million, roughly 10% uh, of its planned spending for 2012. And we're also aware that the management of documents is evolving, changing, um, state of major transformation, especially due to technological advances. Uh, <clears throat> so we recognize change. However, there are certain things that have not changed, and that is the mandate of, uh, of, uh, of LAC, huh? uh, reiterated as uh, soon as late, I should say, as 2012, and that is, among other things, to preserve the documentary heritage of Canada for the benefit of present future generation, to make that heritage known to Canadian, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so in our consultations, uh, we found that lax initiatives, policies have caused a deterioration of the institution's ability to respect its mandate, in effect. Uh, so here's some evidence of this. Now, we sent a questionnaire to uh, CHA members, and we were quite uh, encouraged to see about 50 of you responded with detailed uh, responses. And... Um, <clears throat> The issues uh, that were brought up was this deterioration of services, namely the cancellation of the interlibrary, interlibrary loan program. Uh, and several pointed out that it was increasing the cost of research, in some cases forcing researchers to change their topics, uh, particularly affecting graduate students, uh, independent scholars, and so on. Uh, so we had a teleconference with uh, Mr. Hervé Derry, who was interim director of LAC, and shared with other officials as well, shared our concerns, and asked for it to be reinstated, uh, but to no avail. Uh, uh, although, interestingly enough, the fact that we raised, quoted from the questionnaire that did get them a bit more interested in what we had to say. Um, and what the officials there, uh, for example, said that, you know, we've had to make cuts and we had to choose. And uh, quoting uh, officials, they felt that uh, interlibrary loan was a peripheral uh, program service and should be, therefore, could be on the cutting block. Uh, and also, uh, they said that the request for interlibrary loan has gone down. And uh, the statistics don't lie. Certainly, uh, since the mid-1990s, the requests have gone down by 75%. Uh, now, so cuts, in their view, were also justified by the fact that they were going through this modernization process, i.e. digitization, which would, in effect, render interlibrary loan eventually uh, redundant. So these are the rationale, and again, uh, we, we put in our uh, five cents worth and uh, tried to push, but frankly, it's not looking very promising on that front. Um, 
Now we are sure that uh, we can't contest the fact that the requests have gone down, but we try to figure out why would this be. One of the factors we underlined was uh, amicus. So the system, uh, um, Heather Moore will be talking to us about, uh, you're familiar with, um, and this bibliographic system that we all go through, transit through to get to documents. It's a problematic system, and we thought this could be an explanation. Also, decrease in acquisitions. Uh, historical publications. In 2005, they bought $500,000 worth of such documents. And to 2012, $28,000 uh, worth of documents. Uh, so is it any wonder that people are perhaps asking for less? There is less to ask for. And finally, uh, laying off a good part of their staff, uh, working on non-digital records also uh, would reduce uh, requests and so on and so forth. Now, uh, the other issue we have tried to get a better sense of is the whole process of digitization. Um, and you could argue that this is the initiative that LAC officials invoke to justify most of their changes, their policy changes and change of quality, uh, the change in the quality of their services. Uh, from the cancellation of interlibrary loan to the decommissioning of the building on Wellington Street to reducing the time archivists spend with researchers and on and on. That is the term they bring up again and again to say uh, the, these don't work. These services are cut. Certainly is affecting uh, the community of researchers, but it's temporary. Digitization is on the way, and uh, and so on. Now, we've made it clear that okay, we're not dinosaurs. Huh? It's not that uh, we we uh, pine for uh, the days when you went into the dusky archives and so on, uh, we are very aware of the changing world. However, <coughs> uh, the, the way LAC is going about it is leaving many questions, many concerns, uncertainty, uh, roadblocks to research. In a nutshell, we've been making the point to them that their lack of transparency with regard to how they're going about this massive digitization is leaving researchers with too many questions. We've been arguing with them that more public discussions about timeline process, selection criteria, who will be responsible for digitization, etc. We're getting comments, and you probably uh, feel the same, have experienced the same thing. Uh, I'm being told that these documents will be available in two years, in three years. Um, when or what documents are being digitized, what's the sequence, it, it's complete, uh, the complete unknown. So we were saying we need to know, give a sense, uh, not necessarily promise that they can be to, in our hands tomorrow, but at least get a sense of when they're coming, what's down the pipeline. So this is what we've learned so far. So I'm going to bombard you with some statistics, but just to give you a sense. Um, we were told that the main criterion to, to determine what will be di digitized first is, in effect, the rate of usage, of consultation. So we were told that 70% of users regularly consult 10% of lax holdings. And these mostly concern <coughs> military, native transportation, immigration issues. So these are the collections that are being digitized first. So far, 50 million pages have been digitized by LAC and another 15 uh, million by other third parties. They have got 400 million to go. Now, taking into account that it costs, that, that they can only uh, digitize roughly 1.7 million pages in a year, it's going to take time, obviously. And if they continue cutting, it's going to take even more time. And in fact, you know, the, the, so the timeline can only but increase. And their need, as we've been saying, there needs to be a recognition that they, they have to institute policies for this period of transition. Now, we've recommended to them 
that there needs to be a policy in place in parallel with digitization, with, which provides researchers, users with a timeline that will allow them to know what is being digitized, in what order, expected dates of completion, etc. In addition, LAC should make public on its website and others across the country what documents have been digitized and which are next and so on. Transparency, we have uh, repeated and repeated, is required here. Uh, it's just simply a practical matter. It will allow people to uh, plan. And also, <clears throat> in future, and this is the hope, uh, Users should be consulted about, uh, about, and LAC should make public in a timely fashion the criteria that determine what outside companies or organization will be hired to do digitization because they are hiring other uh, companies. And um, what are the criteria being used by these companies to digitize what and so on. So it's a big no man's land, and we've been arguing we have a right to know what's going on. And yes, who will undertake the digitization? Uh, that's another issue we've been bringing up, and I know uh, all our uh, other panelists will be addressing this either directly or indirectly, so I won't uh, go too uh, far into this. What is my situation here? My Okay. Um, <clears throat> Now, uh, the recent partnering with, uh, with these private companies raises a whole host of uh, questions. And um, finally, another issue that has been of great concern to us is uh, their evaluation and acquisition policy. How do they decide, make decisions as to what to keep, what to uh, discard, what to conserve, and so on. And that also is a policy in uh, transition being written or uh, applied as we speak, in fact. And they've labeled this the whole of society approach. And without getting into the details, initially we were told that it would involve forming of few committees, thematic committees, and they would invite historians, experts, to sit on such committees to discuss and uh, in, get involved in the selection process. Well, uh, recently, uh, we found out uh, through our conversation, a teleconference uh, with LAC officials and meetings with them, that they had gone beyond simply, uh, well, defining what this approach would be, but they've decided not to make use of our expertise, not to, in effect, have historians sit on these, on these committees. We were told, uh, listen, we've got our in-house experts, We've got archivists who are uh, good historians, trained, and so on. Uh, we don't need to call upon you, uh, members of the CHA. Now, it's not to dispute, and I, I'm sure most of you know uh, archivists, and so on. We're not going to start saying, no, no, uh, they're not qualified. But uh, in order to cover every period, we made the point that you would need to have experts in a wide range of periods. Is this what you have? And we invoked the model of the Museum of, uh, the Canadian Museum of History, now named that, uh, who has, that has called upon historians to help them give them expert, our expertise when, as they are, uh, building this new history hall. And so we said, look, uh, the his Museum of Canadian History has called upon experts from the outside. It's not that they don't have experts themselves. They've taken this initiative. Why don't you consider this as a model? Well, uh, we haven't uh, heard that there's any progress on that, but that is quite worrisome uh, because they're really uh, putting what you could say are expertise aside and the criteria uh, for selecting of documents is very, very vague. Uh, they've got a list of criteria uh, that uh, include, for example, society, significance, sustainability, suitability, sufficiency, 
uh, what, what does that mean? And uh, well, we weren't able to get much uh, concrete, specific information as to what uh, that means. And they showed us uh, a flow chart of committees and so on and so forth to explain how they're going to bring this policy into uh, being. And so, frankly, we've all. Uh, got uh, higher degrees were not stupid uh, I didn't understand and I think uh, many of my colleagues uh, what, what, what does this mean uh, not very easy to figure out another thing we've been pushing and I'll, I'll close with that is uh, pushing them to reinstitute what they had uh, which were these pan-Canadian documentary heritage forum where, which brought together stakeholders librarians archivists um, a wide range of stakeholders to share experience, share their expertise, and enter into dialogues that would be uh, certainly fruitful. They have not uh, really responded and said, yes, 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 we'll do so, but we are thinking of pushing this, well, we're not thinking, we're pushing this uh, on it and on. And uh, I'll just end with this. This is a suggestion uh, from a colleague, uh, past president of the CHA, Dr. Lyle Dick, who uh, felt that in parallel to all these initiatives, uh, bringing greater awareness to the public uh, would be important to get more people caring about the archives. Um, and also, he was saying we should, there are elections coming up, we should be asking our politicians, what are you going to do about the archives? That is sure to be a big draw, big question, huh? uh, front page news. Uh, uh, but uh, we, ha we should, and Lyle was suggesting that we come up with a list of questions we'd send to these politicians. Anyway, as you can see, we're strategizing. Uh, I think I'll let uh, somebody else uh, take over the mic, but just to give you a sense of what we've, we've been doing. Thank you. Before I start this, I'd like to dedicate this little talk to Terry Cook, who some of you may know passed away recently. Um, Terry was a contemporary of mine at uh, Queen's University many, many years ago. Um, I got to know him in a very collegial sense as, as two graduate students. Later on, uh, as we both pursued our separate careers, um, Chad Gaffield and I worked on something in the 1980s called, well, we were automating archives of, of municipal archives on Vancouver Island. Um, and we did a couple of publications uh, branching into a territory that few historians at that point had ever gone into, i.e. archival provenance and all sorts of other kinds of interesting concepts that we, were, we thought we knew, we didn't really know. And Terry, very gently but thoroughly, um, guided us through that kind of maze in, in, a, in a way that was, again, very collegial, very kind, and very intellectually stimulating. He re in other words, he responded to us. He didn't leave us sitting out there in, in a vacuum. Um, and I'd like to remember him for that. Also, I'd like to make mention of a session that I was at earlier today, um, just by happenstance. The three, three graduate students were presenting very good papers, actually, very good papers. I won't mention this session, but uh, it was very good content. Um, and another graduate student who was in the audience asked a question of the three, or a statement, made a statement to the three, and it went the following way. Isn't it really exciting in this day that we can use digital materials? Like, I mean, we can just go on to the and tap, tap in, and we have these. We, oh, we have so much, and on and on in this kind of um, very upbeat way. And then, and I was with her. I mean, I thought that was all kind of cool. Um, then she said, "I think this is the real great divide between us and our supervisors. They still go to archives and look at dusty material. They're not really, by implication, into the digitized kind of world that we are today, right?" I could agree with that in the sense of born digital. I mean, I'm not into born digital. I mean, I'm sure all archival all, all students nowadays are creating digital, born digital materials, right? I'm not creating any born digital materials. Well, maybe I am right now, but it's not, not as a rule. I don't do that. Um, but beyond that, I mean, there, there is no real divide. There, it, I mean, it's just, or if there is, I shouldn't be talking today because the, that the, my title of my talk is exactly on the topic that I'm not supposedly at all confident to discuss. 
our digital data in a state of crisis. Wait a minute, I'll get it from up here. So since I'm being recorded, I'm going to stick to the text because I tend to sometimes digress and I don't want that to come back to haunt me. Um, I'm quoting, the next big idea in language, history, and the arts, the New York Times recently proclaimed, is data, capital D. Digital data takes many forms, words, sound, pictures, and numbers. In all these forms, access to data, as everyone present is all too well aware, is proliferating. Society increasingly operates in a world of data abundance rather than data scarcity. Crucially, such abundance is leading to new understandings of innovation and production processes. Rather than innovative innovation sorry, being a closed process akin to the Schumpeterian notion of a lone entrepreneur or firm, well, a.k.a. the lone humanist scholar, um, innovation is generated via increasingly open, collaborative interaction, the products of which are seen as public goods, not proprietary preserves. These new open models for innovation are welfare-enhancing relative to closed processes. Such models require nurturing by universities, granting agencies, and public policy makers. But is that what is happening? Conspicuous consumption. We often hear that we're going to be, and perhaps already are, overwhelmed by big data and data abundance. One commentator referred to, quote, the growth of the digital universe as a perpetual tsunami. From that perspective, the central challenge is to avoid being drowned, to navigate effectively, to construct new and revolutionary tools that will allow us to control and manipulate rather than be controlled and overwhelmed. So prevalent is this notion that one might almost say it underpins the way or is the premise from which granting agencies structure competitions and digital humanities researchers attempt to advance their field. The data already exists, but its magnitude demands new approaches, etc. From the perspective of the overwhelming abundance of data, the notion of adding to such data seems hardly worth discussion. There are several problems, as again many of you all realize, with this notion. It can be argued that data accessibility today, while hugely impressive, only amounts to the tip of the iceberg. Sort of a scarcity admits plenty. Um, we have, you know, we have an awful lot of material, especially in of, of things such as maps, illustrations, photos, manuscript sources. They're virtually untouched by digital technologies. As well, routinely generated sources like assessment and tax rolls and census returns remain in forms difficult, if not impossible, for systematic academic use. The assumption of abundance runs the danger of foreclosing possible research avenues. The kinds of data that are currently digitized might lead researchers to assume that that is all that is necessary and, in fact, might lead to biased, limited, truncated explorations and conclusions. There's an article recently in the CHR that argues this in terms of uh, various newspapers and the kinds of biases that are inherent. If you only have one kind of newspaper that's dominating a period that's digitized, other newspapers existed, but they're not equally available. They don't get us used as much and so on. It's a very good article. Milla? What, what, somebody got his name? Sorry? Yeah, so... If you haven't read it, you should check out the CHR and do so, I would argue. Um, so with what realistic possibility of success might a researcher approach granting councils with a request for funds to add to the stockpile in this era of seeming abundance? Moreover, the notion of big and abundant pushes to the side any substantive questions concerning the abundant data currently withheld from public view. The notion of private versus public access is a major problem in the modern world, but one that the present fixation on conspicuously consuming terabytes of digitized data deflects from view. Secondly, I would also suggest that this fixation on conspicuous consumption leads too easily to the notion that we are in a revolutionary era, a watershed loving. This goes back actually to that student in the, this kind of conversation. We're, we're the vanguard and we're the, the other guard. Um, even for the data that have been digitized, much work must be done to structure that data in ways that facilitate answers to specific and substantive research questions. Data are only useful in the context of seeking answers to significant questions, to advancing research agendas. The key point to people who, I don't know whether you know about uh, digging into data competition. Is this a foreign concept to it? Digging into data composition is kind of, it's, it's illustrative of the kind of world that I would argue we should be moving towards. Digging into data is a, emerged from a collaboration of major granting agencies in Canada and the U.S. and then ultimately Canada, the U.S., Great Britain, and several other European countries. The granting agencies came together to allow people who are interested in working with big data to apply for money, not much money, but apply for money at least to, to bring forward their ideas and show at a certain level what they're able to do. So there's, I think we're into the third iteration of this now, fourth iteration of this now. Thanks, John. 
Um, the um, this is the quote I'm about to give is from the first one, and, and it, it makes the point that I'm talking about in terms of data by themselves are useless. You have to have good questions to ask of them. So uh, two people called William Thomas and Richard Healy stated at the first digging into data celebration in Washington in 2011, quote, the key point is we are not driven by technology, rather by the desire to address substantive research questions not adequately dealt with in the pre-digging era. And to do that, one has to marry human diligence, time-consuming hands-on effort, and machine technology. In other words, we're not supplanting anything. We're bringing things together in a synchronistic kind of way. And that should not be lost sight of either. So I think the key questions are two, and they're related. I'm sure there's many more than these, but you have to say things like this. How, how does one access new big data, and how does one digitize, preserve the new and existing big data? So, What I'm about to say may be a little bit controversial, but we'll see. So I'm going to talk about two initiatives that recently, and all of you have at least touched on in some sense of the word, two initiatives that have um, involved the LAC um, with private companies or private organizations, if not private companies. The first one is Canadiana.org. In July 2013, Canadiana.org entered into an agreement with LAC that, in a general sense, is of the following sort. For 10 years, Canadiana.org will have complete control of um, something like 60 million historical documents, which they will digitize. 60 million historical documents from LAC. This figure is, this is the best figure I could find. It doesn't jive with the kind of figure you're talking about, so I'm not sure how I understand that. We we can talk about it later, but it's out there. I I have a source. Um, According to the source, this will triple LAC's uh, digital output, which doesn't seem quite right. So anyway. But Canadiana.org, this is the point I want to make. Canadiana.org has control of these informations that they are digitizing for 10 years. They agreed to put into the public sphere 10% of what they digitize each year. Um, and that seems kind of cool. So by the end of 10 years, they're going to they'll give it all back to the public, right? And, and, and there was a big controversy about um, something called a paywall. Um, people on blogs and people on, on various other kinds of formats, forms um, were, were, were criticizing LAC roundly and wondering why Canadian.org, which does have a very good reputation in terms of 19th century materials, which are immensely useful, um, why would Canadian.org, in a sense, sort of get in the wrong side of this kind of coin um, and charge coinage in order to be able for a user to use the digitized materials? Thus, the paywall argument. And when this first came out, people were just upset because they thought they'd have to pay for everything. Well, Canadiana.org's response was, no, 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 no. You'll have free access to everything we digitize. It will be up. It will be mounted. Mind you, only 10% a year, but you'll get it. You'll get it at the end of 10 years. You'll have free access. Oh, that sounded good. But then you push a little further, and you find out, well, it's not quite the kind of access that we normally would like to have, i.e., it's free access to the picture the digitized picture, but there'll be no kind of indexing. There'll be no kind of metadata. To get that kind of metadata, which is almost crucial, I mean, really, um, in order to be able to use the images at all effectively in our lifetime, um, uh, the, well, in my lifetime, um, the kicker is that they're going to charge for what they call this enhanced documentation. I don't know how much they're going to charge, but they're going to charge for that. At the same time they're saying this, they're saying there's no paywall. Well, yeah, but that leaves us with all these massive digitized product that's out there, but it's only on accessible as you, as you, in a sense, click, click the switch to get the next picture because you're not going to be able to do any kind of search material on it unless you pay whatever that price happens to be. And we're not sure whether the enhanced data is going to be part of that 10% that's given back at the end of each year and thus allowed for free or not. There's no, there's no real understanding of that. At least I, don't, I have not found any real understanding of that. But the argument is, of course, that at least they're doing it because LAC is not going to do it. Cutbacks have really hit the digitization section. Again, there's different stats as how many of these people who already were able to do it effectively have been canned. Um, and LAC just is not going to be able to keep up in any way, shape, or form, with, as, as, as Nicole mentioned, with, with the demand, the, the need for it, um, even while using it as a, as a pretext for cutting in other areas. Also, 45 university libraries contributed $1.74 million towards this digitized project about Canadiana.org. So they have backing, and they've always, Canadiana.org has always had backing from the library, university library sector. They're very supportive of them, and again, for good reason. They've done good things in the past. Are they going to do it in, in the future? Well, in a, in a limited kind of fashion, it would seem. So how do you, how do you weigh the, the balance in this? Um, on the one hand, it's imperfect, really imperfect for uh, academic use uh, in, in terms of research. Uh, on the other hand, something's getting done that would not ordinarily otherwise get done. There's no hope otherwise that I can see for it getting done in the current context with which lack is um, faced. 
Um, whether that's Lack's fault, that's a whole other issue. I mean, they, they have a real, they've had had and perhaps still continue to have a failure of leadership at the top, but um, that's going to be cut before it gets published. So um, I was only kidding. It's, it's, I just wanted to make sure people are still awake, but I guess not, it's not working. Um, so at least at, at the bottom line, there's some disingenuousness about Canadian.org's response. They should have said up front, yeah, part of it's going to have a paywall, and the other part isn't. They still deny any part has paywall, when in fact it does, and it's a crucial part. Second one, so is it a silver lining? I'll leave that up to you to think about. Um, I do like this quote, though. Lack has remained constipated for too long when uh, it comes to digitization. And that's, that's not my saying. It's, it's a quote that I had afterwards. So it's, it's okay. This one is more controversial, Ancestry.com. Commercialization of digital data has important consequences for scholarly research and innovation. Ancestry.com is a case in point. A, close look, a closer look at the evolution of Ancestry.ca before I comment on how I feel about Ancestry and LAC and, and various other things uh, is instructive. Let's look at the evolution of Ancestry.ca. The company has grown quickly, provides a service that opens data otherwise unavailable to many potential users. Plus, from 1983 to 1997, Ancestry published family history books. In 1997, it commenced its own online services. By 2002, it had 47 million in revenue, which over the next four years, 2006, increased to 140 million in revenue with upwards of 800,000 paid subscribers worldwide. Today, it boasts 2.7 million paying subscribers and more than 12 billion records that are up on, on, on their sites, various worldwide. For Canada, Ancestry holds 2.7 million searchable records. Searchable records, right, at some level. Surely one might conclude that in the context of the digital economy, this is a model firm, an exemplar to be followed. So let's do the argument against Ancestry. Some might disagree with what I just said, that statement, the last one. Some might argue that to a very great extent, the company's success rests on the appropriation of data often already digitized from the public sector. This appropriation took two forms, people might argue. Throughout the second half of the 20th century, the Church of the Latter-day Saints engaged in an extensive microfilming project of routinely generated data like assessment rolls and census returns to provide information which would allow their parishioners to baptize their dead relatives. And I mean really extensive digitizing and microfilming and digitizing thing. Volunteers went to archives and in return for the right to microfilm data gave to those archives a copy of each film. And probably many of us here have used these kinds of materials. Um, as well, the church allowed free access to all its holdings to whomever applied. In the 1990s, the Mormon church began to digitize their holdings and to make those results freely available. In 1997, the church entered into an agreement with Ancestry to market CD-ROMs and other material while retaining open access to its church-generated products. Here's where it gets a little, I haven't been able to really find out exactly how what I'm about to say occurred, but it did occur. Ancestry maintained that open access at the church's widespread family history centers until 2007 when it privatized the data over which it had gained control. Now, it did this ultimately with, with the church's consent, but I don't really understand, and people, I, I've talked to people within the church about this, and it, it wasn't a happy, it wasn't a happy uh, conclusion, but exactly how it, 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 could, it occurred, um, I don't have that kind of detail. A second trajectory also involved the privatization of public documents, mainly relating to nominal census-level data. The company, Ancestry, entered into agreements with many archives, including Library and Archives Canada, to acquire often already digitized data for market purposes. It would seem that national archives, the traditional, and I note I'm saying plural, national archives, the traditional custodians of a nation's patrimony, are increasingly reduced to plumping for one or another genealogy.com company. The National Archives in Great Britain, for example, recently backed a large commercial merger to oppose Ancestry in order to provide a British alternative to the U.S.-based company. The nature of these archival arrangements are at the moment opaque, but the results are clear. Much data collected and often digitized at the public's expense now resides in private hands, and in many cases, that same public must now pay for the privilege of access. That's the point against Ancestry and against, by implication, LAC. My point of view is as follows. Up until the last couple of years for the academic community, the consequences of what I've just been talking about have been profound. Data is being packaged in forms which perhaps answer the needs of the genealogical community, but fall far short of meeting the needs of scholarly researchers who routinely ask questions about Canada's historical development that require analysis of units much broader than that of an individual. The issue is less that crucial data related to Canada's history is being marketed in such an individualized manner. Rather, it is that that is the only form in which a researcher can access such data. 
to construct the structured online databases that will facilitate crucial and cutting-edge research into Canada's past is a time-consuming and costly process for which granting agencies in Canada are currently ill-equipped to underwrite. Now, I, I can speak with a great deal of personal knowledge of this in more detail, if you wish, later in terms of the cost factors. And I probably will speak before the UNASC. To the extent that the academic community is unable to effectively utilize these data, Canada will fall behind developments internationally. An equally important consequence is that the training of humanities students in the operation and use of structured databases and all that entails will be severely limited, and God knows it's limited enough already. The current trajectory of data management and dissemination represents what we have termed a traditional model of innovation, where one or several individuals or firms acquire near total control of, in this case, a previously publicly available resource which is marketed in a manner that channels further innovation down a narrow road. The alternative, and what we consider to be a more modern vision, that of open access and open experimentation, is blocked, and we believe welfare enhancement is diminished. Under the current LAC Ancestry Agreement, then, researchers are limited in their capability to analyze census material and other materials of, of the like sort, routinely generated materials. What to do? Up to now, we are with the international leaders in this domain, as Chad Gaffield was a, was a leader of a group called the Canadian Century Research Infrastructure Project. And there's a neat article on this also in the CHR. If you read the CHR, you probably have already read this article, which outlines what we, what we were doing in that regard. But this is it's a worldwide kind of thing that's happening. We, we were, an extent, on the cusp of this, and we still are to a degree on the cusp of this, but now what I'm about to do is situated into where the world is now moving. I mean, knowledge frontiers are always changing. They're always moving somewhere, not necessarily, I don't mean that in the, uh, uh, they're going upwards or downwards, uh, they're just moving, right? And we want to keep track where it's important to keep track. We want to keep online with that. But I would argue we're in very great danger of losing that position, one we have enjoyed over the past five to ten years. Recent agreements between people in uh, England, Kevin Schur is the person's name, um, and England's largest um, <clears throat> genealogy company called findmypast.co.uk, and by people at the University of Minnesota, Steve Ruggles is the person's name, and Ancestry.com, we're coming back to this company, the world's largest genealogical company, have led to two parallel but separate collaborations. The Schur England collaboration has resulted in the Integrated Census Microdata Project which promises in 2014 to make available to academic researchers all data collected on all residents of Great Britain at each decennial census from 1851 to 1911. Millions and millions, 240 million roughly people, with all the variables associated with them. They've entered into an agreement with that doc, uh, genealogical company. Likewise, people at Minnesota have entered into an agreement with Ancestry to do the whole of the 1940 U.S. Census, 50, 60 million people, with all the variables associated with that. Plus, they've entered into an agreement with Ancestry to um, work with all the um, census materials from 1851 to, I think, 1961, but whatever. It's probably not 1961. 1851 following, at least to 1921, um, that the Mormons had already accumulated. Now, these genealogical censuses do not contain all of the variables associated with each individual, but they do contain each individual. So even having that data made in a, in a machine-readable, digitized form, I haven't got, you know, I haven't even started. Are you kidding? Oh. Okay, um, I have a whole other third section which you can ask me about, and that's what we're going to do to conserve, preserve. But my, my final point on, on this is that um, ancestry is good. We can work with Ancestry. I am now engaged in an agreement with Ancestry, if I get the funding for it, to digitize the 1911, 1921, 1906 Western, and 1916 Western Canadian censuses, 18.5 million people, all the variables. All I need to do is get the money from the Canada Foundation for Innovation. But Ancestry is willing to work with us on this. Um, we have the rights to all academic use. They have the rights to all profit use, right? There's a difference there, and there's certain kinds of things we have to adhere to. It's a good thing in the context of the world in which we live. There is no other alternative. We couldn't possibly do, we're, we're going to apply for something like, we are applying, have applied, for something like $2 million to do this. If I had hired students to do those 18.5 million data entry kinds of things in, at U of A, it would cost $28 million, roughly. I mean, it's cheap. It's cheap, and it's going to be available. And I'm really sorry that I was long-winded, but there you go. how we really don't need data in a world where you can call up data on your handheld device. 
And I think that that sort of attitude is going to speak directly to what you were saying. I was asked here as a, uh, because I'm a former civil servant, so I have to some extent an insider's, although a worm's eye insider's, view of what's been going on. And after listening to the two presentations here, I think I'm just going to discard the little presentation I was going to make and simply speak to some of the points that were made by Nicole and Peter. First, starting off with Nicole. Nicole reviewed for you the situation with Amicus. Amicus was something like a multiple listing service for books in Canada. It meant that if you were in Waterloo, you could find a book somewhere near you in Waterloo. If, you, if it was in British Columbia, it didn't matter. It was backed with an interlibrary loan movement service, shipping service, that would get it to you. You are concerned primarily here about the archives. You don't distinguish very well between what libraries were doing and what archives were doing. Amicus was a library initiative. And insofar as libraries are concerned, Library and Archives Canada is, is service by service going out of the business. In doing so, though, I think a couple of points need to be made. In 1999, the English report on Library and Archives Canada was already talking about the lack of staff, the lowering of budgets, and the effect that that was having on services. In 2004-2005, my department merged. I had been with a department called Solicitor General. We merged with uh, Emergency Services Canada and with the National Crime Prevention Centre to create a brand new department. We acknowledged that in our electronic records by adding a few lines of coding. It changed the record profile that we submitted to Library and Archives Canada for amicus. Now, you've got to understand our books were about crime, deviance, drugs, terrorism, emergency preparedness. These are topics of concern to ordinary Canadians. Ordinary Canadians want to get access to these books. Because we changed those lines of coding, Amicus stopped being able to pick up our data. Effectively, we stopped contributing records to Amicus in 2004-2005. We're still there. It's still there. The reason that, that Library and Archives Canada usage uh, was reporting usage of 75% drop is true. What they're not talking about is the 15 years before that of crumbling software, of, of legacy software that nobody really knows how to patch and change. This is a true disgrace to our nation. But it is also symptomatic of a deeper problem at Library and Archives Canada. Lack of resources and lack of a larger picture framework. This brings me, oh, and the kind of digitization that you're talking about is almost all of it with public records. You're saying about firewalls, uh, sorry, paywalls. We've already paid for that information once. And if you allow public information to become commercialized, then you have to think about the next step. Little history here. Atlas, University of Toronto Library Automation System, was a commercially, it grew out of University of Toronto, but it became a commercial system, and it was, its primary stock in trade was the thousands and thousands of records that Canadian libraries with tax dollars had contributed to it. It was sold to an American company. It's no its, its successors are there, but it is no longer available. Uh, do any of you remember QL? Quicklaw. It was funded by... Uh, some of our colleagues do remember Quicklaw. It was funded by the federal government and in a private partnership, a private company in a public partnership. It was the best damn database for legal material you would want to see. Statutory material, case law material, commission material. It was wonderful. The man who created it wanted to retire, and there was no Canadian owner. There was no Canadian prospect for the purchase of the company. It was sold LexisNexis, an American company. You're saying that these partnerships have to go ahead. But if so, please write the contracts very carefully. 
because what you are giving these private companies is a sellable resource. And there's no promise that the company that you're dealing with today will remain Canadian or that will remain even in the business. LexisNexis ended up owned by a conglomerate in the United States. This isn't this isn't ancient history, it's fairly recent history, and it can happen again. You will not be affected very much by paywalls because almost all of you will belong to large and fairly well-resourced organizations. Your libraries will license these things for you. It's everyone else who will not be able to access them at all. Okay. Last item. Again, a little personal story. Uh, we started a digitization project in public safety because in terms of its literature, an awful lot of Canadian criminology is not published. It, it doesn't go through a publisher. It isn't edited. It doesn't come out from a university press. It is done in a public document, perhaps, sold by Public Works and Government Services Canada. More likely, though, it's going to be reproduced internally, Sherlock's bound, and distributed in perhaps 50 or 100 copies to people in the department and outsiders who are interested in that particular topic as part of a consultation process. Let's call that gray literature. So the library has a wonderful collection of that gray literature, and it has now been digitized. Is it available at Library and Archives Canada? No, it is not. Is it available at Public Works and Government Services Canada, which has a database, by the way, of older government documents that you may not be aware of? No, it is not. It is available through the catalog of my former department, Public Safety. Better than nothing, but not very visible. That collection is joined by, there's another set, I, I suppose you're probably all familiar with the commissions, the Royal Commissions set that's in uh, tre Treasury Board or Privy Council, Privy Council Office. There are little collections of digitized data all through the government. Salvation Army is digitizing their data all through Canada. And where is it residing? Well, it's kind of like a paper chase to find out. This is leading me to... Oh, and then when you were talking about the project you are doing and you are going through public-private partnerships as well, guys... We need a plan. Michael Geist, in his column oh, four years ago and then several times since, has called for a national digitization plan, which will look at the larger issues involved in digitization, issues of format, issues of conservation, issues of location and findability, issues of copyright, issues of ownership, and I think that when we are talking about these, pro these, these issues, these are actually symptoms of a larger problem. We do not have a direction here. What is the role of Library and Archives Canada in creating that direction and in, in working on that plan? I'm very sorry to say this, but I think it is too large and too important to trust to Library and Archives Canada at this point in its history when its malfunctioning is far more visible to us than the good things that it's doing. Lastly, I want to beat a drum a little bit for a different kind of digitization. You're talking about digitizing huge data sets, and you are also aware of Canadiana.org. I don't know if you know this, but Canadiana.org has a little thing called Municipal World in it. This is, a, this is a periodical I seriously want to see because there's a lot of stuff in it about early parole and the people who are involved in early parole. And Canadiana.org does indeed have a very small run of about two, three years. The thing went on forever, and copies are available at the Library and Archives Canada of the larger periodical. If we do not have a plan which will say, instead of simply what is popular, which will say we have part of something digitized here, let's give a chance to the rest of the publication to be digitized because the whole will be used. Literary 
warrant, which is what you're talking about, people want to see this, is not a bad, fast and dirty way of triaging digitization. You have to make a decision based on something. So you're triaging this material. The genealogists want to see it. There's a market. But as part of a national plan, what we have to look at are what are the larger needs here? We haven't talked about cartographic data. We haven't talked about uh, private sector data, some of, some of which would be of great use to, to us. And I'm afraid, I have to say, that I don't think that Library and Archives is going to be able to lift its eyes above its current problems to address this issue effectively in the time frame that's going to be needed. So the last part of my presentation is just a little bit of uh, bureaucratic baffle gab. You were one of the privileged stakeholders at Library and Archives Canada for many, many years, you, the historical community. You are no longer. The role of Library and Archives Canada, apart from the library's part, which we're not really addressing very much here, is not to provide archival, ac ar archival access to historians. It is to manage the, uh, the resources, to manage the information requirements of the Government of Canada, and it's going under trying to do that. Ian Wilson, I'm told, used to go to places like the deputies' morning breakfasts. Deputy ministers got together fairly routinely to have breakfast and talk about various issues, talking about the paper mountain, which were backlogged paper records, which had to be cleared, which had to be sorted, which had to be accessed, and which they didn't have the uh, resources to do. It's worse now. We now have online systems that govern, that, cre that create documents in the federal government and insist that they all be stored. The, the size of the, I, the information management burden in the federal government is going up and up and up, and it is taking away from library and archives' ability to address the issues that you want it to. I have heard people say that the advent of Guy Bertillon the new librarian and archivists may be the turning point, that things may be different now. They may be. Miracles happen. But I'm going to suggest to you that he will be put under pressure and he will be operating in a system which is designed to turn him into a deputy minister just like all the other deputy ministers with the same set of priorities. What Canada needs now is a champion, a cultural leader, a a breaker of shibboleths and barriers. But when he gets in there, well, he's going to be asked to do, say, the management accountability framework, which is a year-long exercise in the federal government where you have to report on not how well you, ha you helped your stakeholders, not how many interlibrary loans you put out, but your risk management profiles, your personnel procedures. These things are important. These will determine. Oh, and they're ranked. They're ranked by Treasury Board. These departmental priorities will probably take over his agenda. What can the Canadian Historical Association do to help? Three things as far as I can see. One, Nicole, you're right. You have to make a stink. If there is not perceived to be a problem, there would be no interest in solving that problem. And I think to this point, there hasn't been a great deal of, of take-up by politicians, and not civil servants, politicians, of the fact that there are real problems here and that they have to be solved. Secondly, I do think that the Canadian Historical Association would be an excellent place to start scholarly planning for a digitization, a national digitization process in Canada. You were talking about that process at, at the museum where they brought on experts. I think this is simply too important to be left to government policymakers. And probably the third thing is to try to work with the new incoming archivist and librarian to change the priorities of his organization. 
he will be under huge pressure to continue business as usual, to make the kinds of internal... Oh, and this was all being done, by the way, in the context of uh, budget cuts. DRAP. Direct uh, Deficit Reduction Action Plan. It's over this year, but there are talks about new cuts. So those three things, I think, are what the association should be working on. And I would love to work on it as well, but I'm not sure that individuals are the best choice. I think it has to be the organization. And I think it has to be the organization in partnership with other scholarly groups, other stakeholders that want to, uh, the scientists, for example, the people who are using stats can. There's starting to be a groundswell. You can't link your future to the genealogists because that will end up with a wonderful genealogy collection, but not too much for historians. Thank you very much. ActiveHistory.ca is happy to present a recording of Canadian Archives at Risk, a roundtable panel at the 2014 Canadian Historical Association Annual Meeting. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca.